This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Jack Calicut, CFO of Galectin Therapeutics, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 383. What I wish someone had shared with me at the beginning of uh, when, when I took over was something to the effect of take a quarter or two, go through a couple of, of, of rounds of, of reporting with what you have, but then um, take a step back and really focus on how you think that things should be reported and make those recommendations to whether it's your CEO or the board, but, but really figure out what stamp you think should be put on the way finance and accounting is communicating to the company and move that forward. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we've opened up the vault and feature a reprise interview, which we felt was worth sharing with you once again. A while back, we spoke with Gary Roth. CFO of United Capital Finance Partners. I've been on vacation, so I hope you don't mind us reprising our talk with Gary. Meanwhile, to make things more interesting, we kick off the episode with a CEO query. That's right. I ask a middle market CEO when he's going to finally hire a CFO. I think you'll find his response interesting. We begin after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are... A majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. Hello, Thought Leader listeners. As some of you may know, we also interview CEOs on a sister podcast known as Middle Market Thought Leader. And from time to time, when I notice a C-suite may not include a CFO role, I ask the CEO, hey, why don't you have a CFO? You're about to hear me ask that question to Jack Weldy, CEO of SmartLane which is a fast-growing software company in the language 
translation space. I thought Jack gave an interesting response to my question. That is, once I, I got the question out there, you'll see it takes me a little while to actually pose it. But I think our exchange you'll find interesting. Here it goes. I want to know, it seems like you have a, you have a senior vice president of operations, you have a vice president of finance. Um, the question I, I have asked in the past is, when do you get a CFO? And maybe your, your, your vice president of finance could grow into it. You've already got this venture money, though, which is interesting um, because you don't have it. Often someone will bring up, you know, certain companies bring aboard their CFO to help manage those types of relationships. You didn't. Um, you have a senior vice president of operations. You're putting a big emphasis on operations. At the same time, it's not your chief operations officer. Um, your C-suite is, it, it seems like you're, the, the, the C-suite at this time. So my question is, you know, when does it get to be, okay, now's the time I need uh, to, to enlarge my C-suite? Um, how is that? Is this yeah, a area you want to talk about? Yeah, that's a super interesting question, Jack. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have uh, I have a personal policy that I, I think that, you know, that, that the – in general, the highest-ranking people in a in a startup probably need to be vice presidents and at best sort of the, the senior vice president. Um, I'm not really a fan of doing C titles, and so it really depends. That when you ask about what's the difference between a vice president of finance or a CFO, um, you know, depending on how you're going to um, categorize that. If you're saying, hey, do I have somebody who can make sure that Invoices are sent out on time. That we're collecting our receivables in an appropriate way. That we're able to report on our, you know, our P&L and our, um, our balance sheet and our cash flow statements, and basically do the trains run on time. In a big way, that's what a startup needs. But you know, my my vice president of finance is terrific, and he's got a, a, a lot of experience with going beyond that. Um, you know, he's able to put together, you know, revenue waterfalls that we can start to, to really understand, you know, the breakdown between different types of customers. You know, what did they buy? What different products and services? What is the, you know, the, the churn rate of customers that look like those types of customers one year or two years or three years later? What's the revenue retention that we can expect from customers that, you know, buy these products or, or start at this size or, you know, fall into these particular verticals? Those are all really, really important those are all really, really important things. Um, you know, is that the mission of a CFO? I sort of feel like a CFO is that you bring in a CFO when you are, you know, really, really close to, hey, we're ready to go IPO. And at some point, either your vice president of finance, you know, graduates into that particular role, or you say, hey, I might need to bring in somebody who has personally had experience with taking, a, you know, one or more companies public or has operated as a public company um, CFO from, from there. What I find a lot is that when you focus on C titles, people are looking for, you know, that they're looking for sort of title inflation so that, you know, later on they might be able to get that better job after this startup or whatever else. What I want is people thinking about operational improvements, operational excellence. And I just, I don't want to worry about do I have a C title or am I going to get that C title or whatever else. I want to focus on how can I get more efficiency out of whatever my personal, you know, responsibility in the realm that I'm working in out of every aspect of that, and that's an operational focus. Jack Wilde responding to my CFO query. Uh, 
Jack Weldy is, again, CEO of SmartLane. If you'd like to hear our entire interview with Jack Weldy, uh, you can find it on Middle Market Thought Leader, our sister podcast. But for now, our interview with Gary Roth begins. Hello and welcome to CFO Thought Leader. Our guest today is Gary Roth, CFO of United Capital, a national RIA with 47 offices across the country and roughly $10 billion in assets under management today. Gary is responsible for execution of the company's business plan and for coordination among the key operation operational functions of the company. Gary, welcome. Thank you, Jack. I'm happy to be here. Now, I understand United Capital has a, a compelling growth story at the moment, and its success is measurable, whether it be from organic growth acquisitions or investment performance. But before we find out how exactly United Capital is achieving this type of growth, we'd like to begin where we always do, and that's finding out about you, the CFO. So can you first share with us some of your background and highlight some of the key milestones that led you to United Capital's CFO office? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, I've been uh, with United Capital since the very beginning, which is just a little over nine years ago. The company was started uh, in early 2005. Uh, before that, uh, very early in my career, when I was uh, just out of out of college, I co-founded an internet startup. This was in the mid '90s. That was one of the first what became really cloud computing providers to um, to the financial services industry. There was no real term for it at the time. Um, we called it hosting applications, and then eventually the term ASP or application service provider came along. But uh, did that for about seven or eight years, and was really on the technology side of the financial services industry. During that period, I also went and got an, uh, an MBA. And uh, in the process of getting my MBA, I met a gentleman named Joe Duran, who had run a company called Centurion Capital, which was uh, an investment firm that he had sold to GE. And uh, in discussions, the idea for this company came up, and we started working on that. And then this company was launched in 2005, and uh, he's been CEO, and I've uh, been one of the senior executives from the beginning. And we've been uh, busily building now for nine years, as you said. So it's it's gone very fast, and it's been uh, sort of a continual growth story, and we continue to grow rapidly today. So when you, you stepped into the CFO role, you know, was there some idea in the back of your head as to the kind of job that you wanted to create, or did you have a philosophy of finance that you wanted to execute? Well, I, I actually came to the CFO role um, in probably an unusual way. Uh, when we started the company, my initial role was chief operating officer, and that was uh, re really what I was focused on was it was the operations of the company and um, helping develop the business plan, the business strategy, and, and managing all the executives. And as part of that, the finance department was reporting to me. And about two years into the business, in early 2007, our then CFO uh, had to step down abruptly for family reasons. And so it was sort of a natural for me to take over the role, which um, it was maybe initially envisioned as being short-term, but uh, it just sort of stuck. And uh, so for a number of years, for about four years, I was both CFO and COO. And then about two, three years ago, we sort of just shed the COO title, and um, and um, I've been exclusively titled as CFO. So I came to it 
I don't want to say by accident because I was I was I think prepared for it and was managing the function um, from the COO's desk. But uh, my philosophy, I think, was really colored from the way I came in. I'm not a CPA. I, obviously, I have an a, a MBA, so I have a finance background. But um, my, my really initial focus was on making sure that the finance function was explaining not just what the results were, but why. Really talking about um, being in a position to understand what is driving the business, what was driving the business, what's, what was causing the results to be what they were, how we could understand them better, and how we could um, use that information to achieve our goals more effectively you know, on a continuous basis. So my, my, my focus has always been really more I, I guess you know you would say more of a strategic CFO focus than um, you know, certainly than accounting um, focused, and that, I think that's really colored my view from from day one. Of course, as you as you go along, uh, you get into all the technical aspects and you're managing the audits and things like that that are that are more uh, accounting focused. And there's there's obviously a lot of sort of statutory things that you need to do. But I think my mindset from the beginning has always been around what is First of all, what is driving the business in terms of explaining the results, and then what are the needs of the business in terms of, you know, gathering resources, whether they're financial resources or in the budgeting process, to really be focused on what are we trying to accomplish short-term and long-term? What is it going to take to execute that? Do we have the resources aligned in the right way? And then really partnering with our CEO and the rest of the management team to hopefully keep things aligned and make adjustments where necessary so that we can, uh, we can achieve our goals. Let's find out about United Capital now. Describe for us, if you can, uh, what really distinguishes the firm. What's its competitive edge? And and share with us some of its products. Sure. So we are in you know, what's broadly called the wealth management uh, space, and we do um, we provide financial advice and investment advice for our clients, most of whom are individuals. Um, not necessarily the ultra wealthy, but but sort of the millionaire next door, if you will, as, as our typical client. But what really differentiates us is uh, we focus um, first and continuously on what is it that you want your money to do for you. And and we have a process that we call honest conversations, and it starts with something that we call um, the money mind which is a tool that allows people to understand how they make decisions about money and what type of um, actual money mind, quote-unquote, you have, whether you're, you're, you're making decisions based off of fear or you're motivated by happiness or you're motivated by a feeling of, of commitment to others. And we start with that um, to have a dialogue, usually among a couple. That's um, you know, Usually our clients are, are couples and families. To, um, to, to sort of synchronize how it is that the individuals and then jointly think about money and how you make decisions about money and how that impacts really, you know, how you feel about where you are in life. Because you can have people who have vastly different sort of, you know, net worths. And, um, you know, I think we're all sort of conditioned to believe that more money is always better and that you'll be happier if you have more money. But I think if we, if we step back and think about our own lives and everyone we know, we certainly know people who are very wealthy who aren't happy. And we know people who aren't very wealthy who are happy. And we're trying to get to is how do you live your best financial life within the resources that you have? 
And how do you make better decisions about money? So very specifically, and I can tell a story about myself, um, my wife and I are clients of the firm, and when we first went through the Money Mind and the Honest Conversations exercise, we saw that we both had the same money mind, i.e. we thought the same way about money. And what's really interesting about that is you'd think that's a positive thing. And in fact, you know, we've been together for, you know, for we've been married for almost 19 years and we've really never had a fight about money. Uh, and most people would say, that's great, you're really compatible. But what immediately struck me when I saw that we had the same money mind was there's no checks and balances there. We reinforce each other's decisions, good and bad. Uh, and, you know, that can cause real, real problems as well as, as having different ways of looking at things. And, and, and if you have different ways of looking at things, it probably comes out in tension and arguing. And, um, but that could also be healthy. So there's no perfect match. But what we're trying to do is get people to understand how they think about money, how they make decisions, and then go through the honest conversations process, which is really a prioritization exercise to select. We actually use cards, or you know, you can do it online. So um, select things that are most important to you, and things might be, you know, protect my family if I'm not around, or spend more time with the people I care about, or be able to pursue my passions and interests, and all those things are not specifically financial objectives, but then they all flow through to a plan, which is your financial plan, which, which addresses those things. So if, if, if your top goal is to pursue my hobbies and interests, then one of the first things our advisors are going to talk about with you is, okay, how do you make room in your life to do those things? Does this mean retiring younger? If so, does, you know, let's take a look at what that would mean for you. Let's take a look at what it would mean in an, in an actual financial sense if you were to change a retirement assumption age from, say, 65 to 60. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who can do a financial plan for you and who are going to say, oh, you know, let's play around with different assumptions about rates of return, and if we can invest more aggressively or if we can get a higher rate of return, you might be able to retire younger. But we're taking it from the opposite direction. We're not, we're not using the financial result as the drive. We're, we're starting with what do you actually care about in life? What do you actually want to accomplish in your life? And then how can your money or the way we're managing your money with you impact your ability to actually accomplish those things. And then you're going to sit down every year, a couple of times a year, and review with your advisor how you're progressing towards those things you said you cared about, which, again, it's not an, that's not an um, investment performance review. That's really a kind of a life review of, you know, you said you wanted to spend more time with your family, which means you're still working, and that means taking more vacations. Gary, have you taken more vacations this year? How do you score it on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, well, I took a, you know, we took a two-week vacation this year for the first time, so I'm going to give it an eight. Well, I turn to my wife, and she might say, well, yeah, you took a two-week vacation, but you worked the whole time, so I'm going to give it a two. And <laughs> so those things, at the end of the day, might not, they might sound like you're talking to a therapist, but then you're going to have to figure out, okay, can we afford to take the time off within our financial plan that we want to take to be happy? But I can tell you, at the end of the year, uh, you know, you're thinking more about, did I actually do anything this year that I wanted to rather than, you know, is my, are my account values higher than they were at the beginning of the year? The investments are obviously important, and at the end of the day, you know, the money is being invested to support those things that you care about that you're trying to do. 
but I think we, we're putting money where it belongs, which is a means to an end and not the end unto itself. So, so explain to us, what are some of the key metrics for you as the CFO that you're, you're keeping a close eye on day to day? Uh, help us understand your business. What is it that you're watching really closely? Yeah, well, so, you know, you mentioned assets under management at the, at the beginning. And, you know, for any firm that's um, ultimately getting paid to, um, to manage people's money, assets under management and growth in assets under management is, is one of the key metrics. So in general, you know, we're, we're, we are a very growth-oriented firm. You know, we, we started nine years ago with zero. We've just crossed, you know, last month we were over $10 billion in assets under management. And, you know, we've tended to roughly double every, every two years. So, so just overall growth rates in assets and in revenue are, um, you know, have always been sort of at the top of the top of the list. But as the business has evolved, you know, we, we care more now about not just growth, but quality of growth, um, you know, and efficiency, revenue per employee, and the different different uh, ways that growth are, are coming in, what different sources, whether it be acquisitions or organic um, or or market. So we're looking at all those things to understand, you know, what's what's happening in the business. Um, I always say I say growth. Hopefully, we do grow every quarter. We we typically have, but you know, what is what is driving the change, positive or negative, in the business? And it really starts with. Uh, in our business, it starts with clients and asset inflows and 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 asset outflows. That's the that's one of the core measures of the business. Did you have to make changes yourself to achieve uh, some of the growth internally? How did you move the organization in the in the direction you wanted? And did you reorganize finance? You know, we've we've changed so much uh, over the nine years. Um, mostly as a, a you know as a function of of getting larger when when we started we had a sort of a big management team and and that was it and there were really no no other layers and we were bringing on offices and we were heavily engaged with those offices all the time and when we had four offices and you know 10 or 11 people in management there was a lot of bandwidth to focus very obsessively on everything that was going on in in our our offices and when i say office that's where our our financial advisors, we call managing directors, are meeting with with clients around the country. And now, you know, we're I think north of 50 offices today, and we have a you know a much bigger landscape to cover. So we've really had to evolve how we think about things, um, and it's it's been reflected heavily in our reporting. You know, in terms of gaining visibility, we used to just drill in in incredible detail, minute detail to each office every week. And we can't do that anymore because we've we've got um, you know so much to cover. So you know finance has really had to to adapt and develop dashboards and um, ways of looking at the business that are obviously taking sort of high level key metrics and um, starting there and and giving everyone sort of a general health check of the business and then allowing you to drill in, sort of see see where there are red flags and drill in and see where um, there might be specific issues or specific opportunities that uh, we either want to address or that we want to try and, and replicate. Can you share a story of a time uh, in your finance journey when you had an aha moment, a moment of strategic insight that led you to influence your firm's strategic direction? Yeah, I think we 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 went through obviously a very difficult interval. We all went through. I think everyone who was you know 
operating any sort of business went through a difficult interval in late 2008 and through 2009 with the, the economic downturn. And actually, our business grew a lot during that period, but it really forced us, and, and I know it forced me to, to think a lot more about how we, what, what the sources were of, um, of growth for the company. Because in the first few years, we were making a lot of acquisitions, and within those acquisitions, we would come on board and we would integrate them and we would help them really transform their business and add um, uh, new services to for their existing clients, mostly in the area of what I was describing before, what we call financial guidance, um, which which would generate new revenue. Which you know, so in a finance sense, that's organic growth, but it was all from um, existing clients. But you know, and after a couple of years, that would sort of be all done, and you'd need to find new sources of growth. And we really hadn't tackled that second stage question yet. And then when the downturn hit in 2009, it became very clear we could still bring in new offices very successfully via acquisition, but the offices that had been you know, with us for three, four, or five years at that point, um, they had gone through the process of adding guidance and had transformed their business that way. But now they were really just, you know, obviously being um, significantly negatively impacted by the market. And we didn't really have a way for them to grow their business from that point forward. Uh, so it really forced us to say, what is a, a really a long-term, you know, I, I hate to say perpetual, but sort of a continual organic growth and lead generation strategy for the business. And we really started putting a lot of emphasis on that. From my standpoint as CFO, you know, it was, you know, a big part of my responsibility was to make sure we as an organization started you know, focusing on that and actually breaking down our numbers because we really, up to that point, were just focused on aggregate growth. So we really started to get a lot more granular about what is it, what are the different sources of new assets and looking at, you know, every single place around the country and saying, how do we generate growth here? And really partnering with, you know, ending up building a marketing and lead generation team and making sure we're partnering with them for everyone to understand what's going on and um, and and sharing that with all of our stakeholders, our our employees, our advisors, our investors, and really becoming focused on um, not just growth by any means, but all the different sources of growth. And um, so it really changed our mindset. Um, and I think we were seen certainly in the in the industry press that covers our our space as as just an acquisition company and um we weren't because we were always very much you know integrating the businesses and it wasn't a financial exercise but it really turned us into an organic growth focused company coming out of that downturn in, in 2009 so it's really an you know we we talk more about organic growth here now than than really anything else um from a from a, a revenue growth perspective and um we're just, you know, we're constantly evolving it and we're constantly adding, trying things and discarding things that don't work and, and advancing things that do work. But it really changed the business and, you know, and it really sort of came from, um, f from that experience. But, but, but myself and CEO and other members of the executive team really sort of had to deliberately change the language and change the measurements and change the culture to be focused on it. And it took really probably several years before before everyone around the, the company really 
um, I think, grasps how important it is, but I think everyone understands that it is today. So what measurements, did you actually replace measurements, or was it putting a greater emphasis on other measurements? Well, it, it definitely was um, adding more than replacing, and I think sort of segmenting. Uh, you know, obviously everyone's always looking at at or at, at at revenue change and, and and asset change in this business, and for us it was um, really replacing that with uh, you know very detailed uh, understanding of where the assets coming from, how much are coming from acquisition, how much are coming from existing clients, how much are coming from uh, new clients of existing offices, um, and then within that. You know, what are the sub strategies that are that are driving those um, those inflows? And even beyond that, what is the nature of the relationship? What services are we providing to the clients? Breaking down different sources of of revenue that could come from a from an individual client. So it really just just forced us to just kind of drill deeper into the business and not just be satisfied with saying, you know, we grew five percent last quarter. Aren't we? Aren't we? You know we're happy with that or not happy with that. You know, it, it really forces us to say, okay, if we grew 5% last quarter, uh, you know, 3.7% came from organic, 1.2 came from market, 0.1 came from, you know, miscellaneous, that sort of thing. So it's really, um, you know, changed that, that view. And, and what's interesting is what we see around the industry, because we meet with, with hundreds of advisors every year because we do make acquisitions is that it is kind of rare in our space that people actually force themselves to acknowledge what what drove the change because it is a business that obviously fluctuates heavily day to day with with what the market is doing and quarter to quarter with what the market is doing and I think most people in the investment business are sort of happy to take the market gains and think that um, they had something to do with it, <laughs> which you do because you got to keep your clients invested. Uh, you know, but uh, you know that 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 is somehow a substitute for organic growth. And I think that's the other thing is it forced us to sort of say we're going to disregard the market. We're going to go into each year and sort of assume that if we want to hit our goals, let's assume that the market doesn't either help or hurt us. Um, and you know, if it's positive, great. And if it's negative, well, you know, there's not a lot we can do about it. But I think it really said to us um, what we actually say to our clients, which is we want we're going to focus on the factors that we can control, and we're not going to focus on the things that we can't control. And um, you know, in, in our business, the market is something you can control to a limited degree via your exposure, but you can't control ultimately what the market is going to do. So I think we sort of look at the business the same way we, we, we want our clients to look at uh, at their plans, which is let's focus on the things we can control, and then we'll make the best decisions possible about the things that we can't control. So, so with all these offices across the country and the adoption of these new uh, measures and, and ways of looking at the business, you know, is there a con technology component here that allowed you or enabled you uh, to, to create sort of the, the communication and the connectivity you needed? There is. So fairly early on, we recognized that uh, we would need to have some sort of centralized information resource that would be both um, something that our offices could use to manage their client relationships and something that, you know, we at sort of the, the management of the company could use to sort of understand what was going on in the offices and track activity and, and, and use as a, sort of a, an internal sales reporting tool. 
And uh, one of our early co-founders had had built uh, their own CRM system that they had used. This is in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it was pretty clear that you know we didn't want to be in the technology business and maintaining this this sort of a legacy program. So early on, we identified uh, a couple of candidates and wound up settling on Salesforce, Salesforce.com um, as our as our sort of information hub, and that was in late 2006, so we, we've actually been using it now for almost eight years, and, you know, it's it's really been critical for us in terms of but sort of unifying information around the company and making sure that uh, certainly when new advisors and new offices come on board, they all of their information gets loaded into it, um, but we also built a lot of not just sales and, and client relationship management pr um, processes into it, but um, it, it, we really we really sort of early on turned it into um, an activity and, and sort of leading indicator sales reporting tool. So when an office meets with a prospect, um, they indicate you know, what what uh, the results of the meeting were and whether new assets were gathered. So we have we actually have a series of of um, dashboards that are shared with the whole company that are, are live and and updated all the time. That show uh, you know all of the sales activity for every single office, and it's you know sort of bar graphs and dashboards that show every single office, and um, so it's it's sort of a live reporting tool that lets both people here at uh, at the headquarters and everyone in in the offices sort of know how they're doing year to date on a on a leading indicator basis. It's not a financial statement, but it's a sort of a leading indicator of of new sales activity. And then of course it's used for everything else, client documents, storing all kinds of information, um, notes about client meetings, and, and you know we here use it to store notes about interactions with our offices and, and so everyone can be up to speed. If I'm going to call our office in San Francisco, I can look in Salesforce and see what the last conversations were with them, just like our office in San Francisco will look at a client record in Salesforce and see you know, what the last conversations or what the last uh, information was provided to the, to the client. So, um, I'd say, you know, if we didn't have that, we would have had to add something like it. And, and um, you know, at the time in 2006, uh, you know, it's funny, things have changed so much. Everything now is, is cloud-based and online. That wasn't really the case then. And we were sort of making a bet that something that was, um, you know, cloud-based, which the term didn't even exist then, <laughs> I don't think, um, would be the way to go because we knew we were going to be have to be connecting all of these different locations around the country, and, and we wanted something that was really native web-based that would work well um, online instead of something that was just being hosted uh, that was really meant to run locally. And um, there's been, obviously, you know, bumps and bruises along the way, but I, I think we made the right decision. Gary, we now enter what we refer to as our mentoring round, where we ask a series of quick questions uh, to allow you to offer advice to aspiring finance leaders. Uh, and we begin with, what piece of advice do you wish someone had shared with you at the start of your CFO career? What I wish someone had shared with me at the beginning of uh, when I took over was something to the effect of take a quarter or two Go through a couple of, of, of rounds of, of reporting with what you have, but then um, take a step back and really focus on how you think things should be reported and make those recommendations to whether it's your CEO or the board, but, but really figure out what stamp 
you think should be put on the way finance and accounting is communicating to the company and move that forward. Um, and I say that, you know, I, I think I, I, I got there over time, but I think initially because I was taking over someone else's reports is the way I, sort of I came into the job. Um, you know, I, I, I think I took longer than I wish I had to, to evolve things in the direction that, um, I think they needed to go and, um, probably took too much input from too many people and, you know, reached a point where we had a, a finance package for, you know, what was a fairly small company that was, you know, reaching, you know, 50 and 60 pages. Um, you know, and now today it's about eight pages. So I would say, you know, look at what you have and, and don't throw away good things, but also, um, you know, use your judgment and make strong recommendations about about uh, how you think things should be communicated, and and um, you know, get buy-in on that as you know, re- relatively early in the process. What personal habit do you believe has contributed to your professional success? I don't, I don't know if it's a habit. Uh, you know, I, I know that I I, I think I'm a, I'm a very responsible person. I take commitments very seriously. Uh, I don't miss meetings. I don't miss calls. Uh, if I if I somehow accidentally miss something, you know, I I, I feel like it's a major uh, failure. So I, I think that that is probably a quality that ends up that is essential. And certainly in, in the finance function, you're clearly looking for people who um, exude credibility and trustworthiness, and uh, you know, maybe not always being the most charismatic person in the company or, or you know, uh, a sales leader. But, but I, I, I suspect that those qualities that I think I've, I've, you know, I can attribute probably to my parents, uh, you know, are, are what sort of led me here on top of, you know, obviously preparation and, and you know, sort of, um, you know, going, getting the experience both in running a company earlier in my career and getting some formal Finance training through uh, through you know getting an MBA, but I think that 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 quality is probably an essential one in a CFO. You have to be responsible and you you have to be credible and and you know not you know you can't play fast and loose with things. You have to be you have to be pretty much on point uh, and and don't speak to things if you don't know. Um, you know don't relay uh, incorrect information if you don't know the answer to something or you don't have a number. Just say you don't have it and you'll you know you'll get back to whoever's asking for it. At the end of the day, you know, the credibility of the of the organization is very much bound up in the accuracy of what the finance team is reporting and and you know, if if you're wrong, um it goes you know, it, it could cause more questions than if, you know, a salesperson is wrong, let's say. Okay. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, there's um, there's a book that's not really a finance book, but it's funny. It's one of the ones that that sticks out in my mind that um, I read during business school, and it was called Influence. I think it was by a, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist named Robert Cialdini, and it was really. I think the book was it was was broader than this, but what I took out of it was the fact that in any situation. You don't necessarily need to be in a position of direct power to have a very, to have very very strong influence over what happens. Um, and you know, so I think about it for business leaders. I think sometimes people, particularly when they're earlier in their career, they tend to be focused on title um, and hierarchy. And of course, you know, you should respect the hierarchy in your organization in, in a way that you need to. But 
but it really sort of illustrated for me the ways in which, you know, you could, for example, be in a board meeting and not be, not even be a member of the board, but if you've got access to the room, you could strongly influence um, the results of the meeting and 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 effectively, um, you know, determine what was going to happen through, you know, your command of information or your command of the situation. Um, so it it really sort of told me, you know, sort of at an earlier stage in my career, so I probably read it 15 years ago. Don't be so focused on what your stated position is. Be focused on what it is you think is best, what, do you th- what it is you think is right in the situation. Uh, and now that I, you know, I've been in a leadership position, that really most people want to hear interesting and good and new ideas and that you know, people who aren't necessarily uh, you know, in, a, in, in, a, in what looks like a powerful, powerful position can actually have a lot of influence over the direction of uh, either an individual decision or you know, even the, the overall direction of, uh, of an organization. So I think it's, it's, it's worth reading. Another one that I think everyone's probably read, but that is just a good reminder not to be too... Uh, too uh too caught up in your own you know your your own brilliant ideas is uh one genius failed which is the story about uh, long-term capital management and the failure of long-term capital management so that's that's you know i think for any any business professional that's that's probably a must read thought leader listeners don't go anywhere we have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. What is one thing that's really exciting you about finance and business right now? I think the, the thing that's really exciting, you know, it's, it's both, you know, it, it's probably a little bit scary, but it's not scary to me, is, is just the pace of innovation in technology today and what the potential implications are for you know all of our businesses and you know you you have to think about your own function and how you can take advantage of of things but um you know just the, the fact that you know I think I think the iPad is you know came out 4 years ago and you know and I, now I've read that tablets are are already passe because you know they're too big and people just want to do everything on their phones but but the idea that you can have sort of all of the information you need at your fingertips at any given time um is really incredibly powerful and um it it, it and it and it creates a lot of challenges i think for for organizations in particular for cfos because there's not always new data every day but we've reached a point where i think people sort of expect instantaneous refresh of information and so i think it you know it creates a lot of open questions about what's the right periodicity of reporting how can you create more visibility on a more continuous basis so that you kind of keep your own audience engaged and then what's too much you know sort of where, where do you sort of start you know losing sight of the forest for the trees but you know you go to any meeting or any conference today and 
and you know it, you could be at a conference with you know world class speakers and yet everyone's still constantly on their screens and maybe that they're using their screens to ask questions of the speakers but you know they're also checking their investments and they're checking everything else that's going on in their life they may be looking at a camera of their of their home <laughs> what's going on at their home so i think it's just sort of this this, this incredible there's just been this incredible transformation of of currency of information just in the last five years that is exciting and but you know really forces I think CFOs and, and other business leaders to think about how do I harness the tools that are out there, how do I harness information in my own organization in such a way that I can actually take advantage of the sort of the real time tools that are out there. And then, you know, what do I do with this information? And I think it's 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 something that, you know, probably more tech advanced you know, tech-focused organizations may maybe solve more quickly, but I think everyone is going to need to. Everyone who's going to kind of keep pace in this economy is going to have to sort of um, come to a um, some sort of reckoning of of how they're going to have real-time information that's going to be relevant to them, and um, and how they're going to make decisions based on that information because other people are going to be doing it and, and um, you know you, you sort of <laughs> I, I think there, there will be rapid innovations that are happening around businesses that will will leave people sort of stunned and, and you know how do you how do you keep pace with that Gary Roth thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Theater thank you very much I enjoyed it Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.